Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to once again be bringing you the news. So Derek, why don't we just start as we always do at the beginning and talk about Syria, particularly a leader of the Islamic State was killed and Turkey looks like it's preparing to invade. Uh, Yes. So we'll start with the Islamic State news. Uh, The third now caliph of the Islamic State, if you want to uh, use that term. Uh, Abul Hassan al-Hashimi uh, al-Qurayshi uh, was killed apparently recently. Islamic State made that announcement on Wednesday uh, via its own spokesperson. U.S. Central Command then chimed in to say that he was killed uh, sometime in mid-October in southern Syria in Dara province, which is uh, a bit unusual uh, in that the previous two uh, IS leaders who have been killed in Syria were, were residing in the north. He is, as I say, the third Islamic State caliph, the third to be killed uh, in some sort of violent incident, uh, and the second to be killed this year. His predecessor, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurayshi, was killed in a U.S. operation in northwestern Syria back in February. There's very little that was known about this guy This uh, who goes, as I say, by Abu Hassan al-Hashimi al-Qurayshi. It's obviously a nom de guerre. Um, there's very little that's known about him. There, there hasn't even been uh, really any um, consensus on his uh, true identity. There have been speculation that he was a man who's reportedly been in Turkish custody since since May. Um, so probably not him, probably not that guy since he's now dead. Uh, and uh, there's also been speculation that he might have been the brother of uh, Islamic State's first caliph, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who knows. The IS statement uh, announced his replacement, uh, also uh, assuming a very generic uh, jihadist-sounding nom de guerre, Abu Hussein al-Husseini al-Qurayshi. So who knows? Uh, Nobody knows who this guy is either and uh, may not be able to figure it out. So there's nothing really to update. There seems to be a leader who was killed, and there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, you know, it's it's significant in that the leader of IS, another leader of IS, uh, has been killed. Uh, but the group has, you know, been driven to the sort of fringes of Syrian society. It's been driven, uh, and Iraq as well. It's been, you know, almost, you know, even more decimated in Iraq than it has been in Syria. So, uh, you know, I don't know how much you want to make uh, of this, but I, you know, it's, it's obviously significant that uh, this happened, but is it going to change anything? Probably not. So what about Turkey? Uh, yes. So there has been speculation for several weeks now, at least a couple of weeks since the, uh, terrorist bombing in Istanbul earlier this month that uh, the Turkish military is on the brink of invading northern Syria. Uh, Ostensibly, we're supposed to believe that uh, it's doing so because of that terrorist bombing, which it blames on the Kurdistan Workers Party and therefore on the Syrian 
uh, YPG, Kurdish YPG militia and the Syrian Democratic Forces. The, the Turks don't make any distinction between uh, those organizations, which would be believable enough, I guess, except that Turkey's been talking about another invasion of northern Syria for uh, several months now, at least May, uh, since at least May. Um, so what we've seen over the past uh, several days, uh, going back at, to, to sort of late last week, uh, has been a sustained Turkish artillery bombardment, air bombardment uh, of targets uh, linked with the Syrian Kurdish uh, militia or the Syrian Democratic Forces. These are primarily in uh, northern Aleppo province, uh, places like Kobani, uh, Tel Rafat, uh there is uh, the, the Turks would likely also target Manbij, which is a little further uh, to the east. The real question, I think, at this point is why they still seem to be holding off, you know, kind of pulling the trigger on a ground invasion. And there's been some kind of resistance or opposition, stated opposition from the U.S., uh, that I guess may be giving them pause. I mean, U.S. officials have said they don't want this. It's going to complicate their operations in Syria. Of course, the U.S. relies on the, the Syrian Democratic Forces as its proxy force uh, in Syria. So, uh, you know, it's it's uh, probably not thrilled by the idea of another Turkish invasion. That said, the U.S. didn't really do anything about Turkey's previous two invasions. I doubt they would do anything uh, about this one. I suspect that it's more probable there's there's a Russian component to this, uh, the Russians have been supposedly in negotiations with the SDF. Um, just uh, Wednesday, I believe, there were, there were reports that they had moved reinforcements into parts of northern Syria that could be targeted by a Turkish invasion, uh, including, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Tel Rafat and Kobani in, in Aleppo province. Um, and, and the idea would be that the Kurds would hand over uh, the security presence in those areas to the Russians uh, and then, you know, uh, consequently to the Syrian army, which in theory would relieve the Turks kind of concerns over having these Kurdish militias right up against the, the, the border. But more to the point, uh, I don't think Turkey wants to do anything to, to risk its relationship with Russia. Uh, so if that's, if those negotiations between the Russians and the SDF are advancing and it seems like they m might be, uh, that could forestall uh, a, a ground invasion. But at this point, it, it's uh, I think Turkish officials said they could be ready pretty much uh, within a matter of days to go in if, if the order is given. So we'll keep everyone updated on that. Let's move over now, uh, Derek, to China and the protests that have been ongoing there and the new Pentagon report related to it. Uh, yeah, so uh, we could start with the Pentagon report, actually. The 2022 China Military Power Report, which was issued by uh, the Defense Department on Tuesday. Uh, this is the annual report on, you know, how scary China has become and, you know, wh wh what are we going to have, what is to be done about the Chinese menace, I guess. The headline, uh, the main headline that's come out of this report has been uh, dealing with the Chinese nuclear arsenal uh, in the in a, this the 2020 kind of report on Chinese military power, uh, the Pentagon had estimated that China would be up to 400 nuclear warheads by the end of this decade. It now assesses that China has already reached 400 nuclear warheads and could have upwards of 1,500 warheads uh, by 2035. If this all sounds uh, scary, uh, it's really just it's still a, a fraction of what the u.s has um and, and i suspect what 
will what it'll be used for. These these figures are going to be used to justify uh, the one point five trillion, and that's really a, a floor, not a not a a firm estimate, uh, but the $1.5 trillion that the U.S. government is planning to spend in the coming years to modernize the U.S. nuclear arsenal, uh, I suspect it'll be closer to $2 trillion or more uh, when all is said and done. But that's that's what's going to be pulled out of this report, I think, and, and will be the, the main uh, product. Um, now, in terms of the protests, uh, there have been some demonstrations uh, since Friday, uh, in many cities across China since last Friday, uh, that seem, you know, to be mostly centered on frustration with the Chinese government's very strict zero COVID policy. Uh, the trigger was a, an apartment building fire in Urumqi, which is in the Xinjiang, uh, Xinjiang region, uh, that took place Thursday night. Ten people died in that fire. Um, their deaths quickly drew people into the streets out of a sense that zero COVID lockdown policies may have prevented those people from evacuating and or may have hampered efforts to respond to the fire. Uh, the protests then spread from Arumki to, as I say, cities all over mainland China, uh, also into Hong Kong. It became, over the weekend and, and into the early part of this week, it really became, I think, at least arguably the most intense outburst of public unhappiness since Xi Jinping uh, became Chinese president in 2012. Um, I, I wouldn't want to make any pronouncements about I know that the, there's a tendency uh, in Western media as, as there is with no, China's Iran. falling next week. We're calling yeah, it. like next like week, any China's other out. country that's that's coded as bad. These these kinds of things become you know a sign that the system is falling apart and the government's on the verge of collapse. I don't I don't think we're we're anywhere close to anything like that. There is frustration over zero zero COVID. Um, I think understandably to some degree, it's it the the policy has uh, obviously uh, saved lives. I don't think there's any question about that. But you can't psychologically you can't keep people under uh, maximal lockdown conditions indefinitely without some, you know, something kind of breaking uh, along the way. So I understand that. Um, but I, I don't think, you know, there's already, there are already, there are any indications that, you know, the combination of uh, a stepped up police presence and some policy changes that there have been relaxations on lockdown measures. The Chinese government seems to be, uh, per, uh, putting more emphasis into, its vaccination program, which has lagged behind as successful as zero COVID has been, its vaccination policy has not been terribly successful. So they're going to try to uh, kind of encourage people to, to get vaccinated so that they can perhaps, um, you know, ease the, the lockdown policy. So, you know, there has, there's been kind of movement on both ends of this, uh, both to address some of the, the issues that the protesters seem to be having and to suppress the protests themselves. And that, that seems to be, um, working from the standpoint of restoring order. We will keep you all updated with what happens. Let's move over to Russia, Ukraine. Uh, yeah, so there's a couple of things to note here. Um, the uh, Russian, uh, the first thing I'll note actually is that there was a shipment of Russian fertilizer uh, that left the Netherlands on Tuesday. It's headed for Southern Africa. Uh, this, you know, is a, a fairly nondescript event, except insofar as Russian fertilizer has become a very big issue in terms of uh, the Black Sea Grain Initiative uh, and Russia's unhappiness with how that program has been uh, implemented. 
Uh, this is the first in what's supposed to be a, a series of Russian fertilizer shipments that will go to various parts of Africa. I think the next one's supposed to go to West Africa, um, you know, in the coming days. The goal is uh, obviously to, you know, prevent crop loss, which would be disastrous, um, and also to uh, address Russian complaints that the initiative, the Black Sea Grain Initiative, has been uh, far more successful in terms of unlocking Ukrainian food exports than it has been uh, in terms of freeing up Russian food and fertilizer exports, which is we're supposed to be uh, equally, you know, kind of uh, part of that that uh, formulation. Um, the, the Russians have complained that they're Food and fertilizer exports are being hampered by Western sanctions, uh, despite the fact that the U.S. and other Western governments routinely insist that uh, their sanctions are specially crafted in a, in a way that avoids interference with uh, the export of basic necessities like this. Uh, it, they always do in every case that they're, they're applied, whether it's been, you know, Iran, Venezuela, uh, any place, it, it interferes with the, the transition, the transit of, uh, basic needs. And, and that's the case here too. In fact, this shipment that left on Tuesday, uh, was delayed for some time because Dutch officials were concerned about Violating, san- violating Western sanctions. So, you know, that's, that's an ongoing problem that's going to have to be addressed. Uh, but the fact that the, the, the shipment left is, is probably a good sign. It may mean that the Russians are, uh, will be willing to, to discuss a longer, uh, extension to the grain initiative, uh, in four months when it, uh, it comes up for renewal again. Uh, the other thing I would note with respect to Russia, uh, is that, uh, the Russian government pulled out of a scheduled, uh, new start arms control meeting, uh, with U.S. representatives this week. Uh, the deputy Russian foreign minister, Sergei Rabkov, said that the two sides couldn't agree on the scope of the, the session, what it would, would discuss. The U.S. was, uh, sort of mainly focused on, uh, negotiating a resumption of arms inspections under new start while the Russians wanted to bring some other topics up and, and uh, according to them uh, they got resistance from the US um, this is this is not great new start is of course the only nuclear arms control treaty that is still active in the world today uh, it would not be good if uh, the uh, if it went by the wayside the Russians suspended uh, the inspections earlier this year because of uh, sanctions and travel restrictions on their personnel. They said it had rendered them unable to carry out their own inspections. Um, and so, you know, there was a lot of fear that New Start was going to be uh, kind of ground under the, the wheels of the Ukraine war. Uh, the Russians then, uh, a couple of weeks ago, said that they were interested in resuming uh, arms control discussions under the aegis of New Start, which, you know, kind of uh, allayed some of those concerns, but now having canceled this meeting, uh, and they say it's going to be rescheduled. There hasn't been a date given for that, and, and who knows? Um, that's, that's going to, you know, I think create new, uh, concerns that, that, uh, uh, the treaty may be a casualty of the war. Thank you, Derek. And let's talk about God's great United States and what they're allowing Chevron to do in Venezuela. Yeah, over the weekend, uh, this is an interesting development. The Biden administration gave Chevron permission to resume limited, uh, and I don't know the exact uh, parameters of limited, uh, but limited energy operations in Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela, of course, is heavily sanctioned by the U.S., but is uh, the, I, I 
I believe has the largest uh, proven oil reserves uh, on the planet. Uh, so in an energy climate where you're concerned about the price of gasoline, uh, it may be uh, not such a bad idea to try to bring some Venezuelan oil exports back onto the market. The this could be the first step. This this uh, you know permission that they gave Chevron to to kind of resume some operations in Venezuela could be the first step toward doing that, toward bringing uh, Venezuela back into the global oil market. Uh, the move came in response to some positive developments in uh, talks between uh, Nicolas Maduro's government and Venezuelan op- opposition leaders. Uh, they signed an agreement to resume uh, negotiations on resolving their political stalemate. Uh, they called it a, uh, I'm quoting here, partial agreement on social matters. Uh, mostly uh, it dealt with kind of a proposal for widespread humanitarian aid for Venezuela, which obviously needs it very badly, uh, along with uh, a renewed commitment to negotiating. Uh, and I think the Mexican government, the Norwegian government, uh, are going to serve as guarantors. There, there may be another country involved there, I'm not sure, um, towards uh, holding a n- their scheduled presidential election in 2024 in a climate in which uh, all the parties participate, the, uh, the, the the opposition participates in full. Uh, obviously, they would need to, they would want to do that under terms in which they think they can win or at least contend. Um, so there's going to be a lot of work that has to be done there. But uh, that, you know, the, the U.S. has uh, long kind of made a, a reconciliation between the Maduro government and the opposition um, one of the conditions for uh, easing sanctions against Venezuela. So if that process continues to move forward, then we may see more steps to kind of uh, uh, pull back sanctions on, on Venezuela. Thank you, Derek. And why don't we end on Emmanuel Macron's, Macron's visit to the United States? Uh, yes. Yeah, so Macron's in Washington this week uh, on th- uh, well, today, actually, it's Thursday uh, as we're recording this. Uh, he will be the guest at, at the first state visit that Joe Biden has hosted since taking office. They've been discussing, I think, some some points of contention between uh, the U.S. and European leaders more broadly, Macron, especially with the, um, you know, now that Angela Merkel is no longer chancellor of Germany, Macron has kind of appointed himself as leader of Europe. Um, and so, you know, they've been, they've been discussing, uh, a few things. The inflate, the, the Europeans are, are unhappy with the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, they argue that it includes, uh, some unfair subsidies for companies to locate manufacturing processes, uh, in the U.S. Um, you know, there's some other kind of trade and commerce issues, uh, that they're irritated with. Uh, one of the main points of irritation, uh, appears to be the war in Ukraine and the windfall profits that the U.S. Uh, may be making here as a result of that conflict. Uh, a number of European leaders who have, of course, you know, kind of uh, decided to go cold turkey on Russian energy exports uh, under some pressure from the U.S., with the U.S. kind of cajoling them to uh, to stop financing the the Russian war effort essentially by uh, paying for Russian oil and Russian natural gas, et cetera. Um, you know, they, they've wound up more or less cutting themselves off entirely from Russia. You know, this has been a two-way street. Obviously, the Russians have, uh, have cut natural gas exports to Europe uh, quite drastically. Uh, but it's it has been under some pressure from the United States. And yet, 
you know, when it comes time for the U.S. to provide uh, or to sell liquefied natural gas to Europe as an alternative, uh, I guess the Europeans feel like they should be getting some kind of preferential treatment, but they're not. Um, they're they're paying you know sort of uh, you know, very high costs, much higher than uh, natural gas uh, prices in the United States apparently. So they're not they're not very happy with that. Um, there, there's some a- accusation that this is profiteering on the part of uh, the United States or on the part of U.S. energy companies. Um, there's also been accusations of profiteering on the part of U.S. arms manufacturers, which are uh, or potential profiteering on the part of U.S. arms manufacturers, which stand to make a, a, a pretty considerable profit uh, when all is said and done by sort of resupplying European militaries that have been sending their arms to Ukraine. So, you know, there's some tension here over whether the United States is making bank on the Ukraine war, which I would argue it, it certainly is. But, you know, the Europeans are, are uh, apparently not happy with that. That's uh, There was a piece in Politico Europe earlier this week that, uh, or last week, I guess it was last week, that uh, kind of highlighted that. So uh, something to, to keep an eye on. Derek Davison, my sweet friend, the best newsman on earth. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, I don't know about that. All right. That, so but, on uh, that note, we'll see you all it. next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.